0: You've written this book about um, choirs, but it's an unusual angle, as as you'd expect from Dean Powell. There's this image that Welsh Valleys have these wonderful, you know, benign figures of of gentlemen who sing these wonderful songs so beautifully and, you know, there's no sense of of conflict or anything. But your book seems to suggest something uh, other than that, back in the mists of time. Well,
1: that's right. You know, I had the idea quite a few years ago to research really, the starting point of how many of these choirs evolved, particularly in the South Wales Valleys, against a kind of a backdrop of heavy industry and hardship, you know. And at the start, it sounded incredibly twee and romanticised. It looked very kind of stiff-collared um, choristers singing their hearts out uh, in harmony with one another, uh, not just musically, but also in uh, in circles of friendship. But there's always been this kind of sense of rivalry between choirs, which I often put down to, some, to just playful kind of schoolyard behaviour sometimes, you know, a little bit of one-upmanship with a a competition win under the belt against another one or someone having a better tour than the other. But actually, what I did discover by researching the book and looking more back towards the sort of late Victorian era is that these rivalries were pretty severe and it was more than just a bit of one-upmanship and a bit of uh, fun in the pub uh, in the evening. Uh, It was out and out, uh, violence as well uh, between choristers. There was not just reputations at stake, but but big money as well, a lot of betting going on behind the scenes, particularly the growth of the Estelvod movement uh, in Wales, and it was, uh, it was a, a lot more sort of, a little bit more dark and sinister in many places. They, they use a word in a phrase in Welsh called cuthrae um, lacani which means the demon or the devil in music. And it's because of this intense rivalry and, and when, I, when I found more about a certain group of choirs, and, and how bitter the rivalry was, I, I just found the you know, whole thing fascinating, really, in it it does sort of lift a little bit on what went on between some of these male voice choirs, <laughs> uh, well over uh, 140 or 150 years ago, you know.
0: So, uh, was that, are we talking the Victorian era, then?
1: Yes, we are. Well, there were, you know, there was a certain period in Welsh history, you know, you think of the growth of, of heavy industry, particularly in the South Wales coal field, uh, not but anyway, seeing the North Wales didn't progress musically as well, but really in South Wales, if anything else, you had two things happening at the same time, really. You had the growth of, of, of non-conformity as a, as a religious force in sort of mid-Victorian Wales, and then, of course, the coming of coal to many of those um, new up-and-coming volatile melting pots of communities, like the Rhonda, for instance. And, of course, people came from different backgrounds with different traditions, pastimes, and... Religious convictions, and even though I think we look at um, the coal mine industry a little bit with with romanticised look now, of course it was a hard life, and people uh, people paid a great price for coal. I don't mean the, the actual monetary value; I mean the mm. people you know lost their lives underground on, the on a very frequent basis. There was a lot of hardship, a lot of poverty, and of course at times of industrial strife, it brought communities together, and the way in which communities did gel incredibly well, and and created a kind of a community cohesion between them, because these were new communities, of course, that had just evolved, was, of course, in chapel. So people came together in chapel, and chapel became more than just places of public worship. They became social centres, really, a place of entertainment, education, politics, and a place where people, for the first time, began to sing as a congregation and learned music. And I think it's a lot to do with the fact that people found not just inspiration and felt closer to God because they were able to sing these wonderful sort of religious hymns. But also um, it, it, it helped to relieve them of the stresses of everyday life. Mm. You know, today choruses will say how, how better they feel and their own health and well-being for being able to sing in a choir because it does help to relieve stress and anxiety. And I think our forefathers knew that way back 150 years ago. So, you know, those things were happening at the same time. And these these choirs began to evolve with incredible... Uh, rapidity and, it, it be- and with the growth of your steadfast as well you now had so many things coming together at the same time uh, passenger transport on the railways for instance that people began to move a lot more and um, it became like tribal warfare really <laughs> you know so you look yeah. at the time when it wasn't just about singing and enjoyment of singing but there was competitions and there was big money at stake as
0: well. because mm. well, the demon money, of course, always um, turns the head, doesn't
1: it? Oh, it does. And there's some really great stories here. You know, I've got to say, some of the the uh, behaviour between choirs at the time uh, was just absolutely fascinating. And looking into the newspaper reports of, you know, one rival choir on a stage, for instance, and their, their opponents were in the audience. And because they objected that one of the choristers maybe was a professional singer, that someone shouts out um, on with the pipes boys and they all bring out their clay pipes and start smoking and blow the smoke into the faces of the choristers so they'll (laughs) cough and can't keep singing. And then it becomes uh, more about going behind the back of the marquee where they're performing and pulling up all the pegs and the the tent collapses on top of the choir as they sing.
0: Dear, oh dear. Ah,
1: you have adjudicators who are afraid to give winning prizes to certain choirs because they are frightened about their own um, safety of getting out of their mice themselves because they think the other choir is going to object so strongly they will you know they will <laughs> they, they will have a few bloody noses by the end of it yeah. and the adjudicator could be in the middle of it so there's lots of that going on in Wales at the time anyway and with money at stake in competition wins uh, and I really focus very much on three men that um, I think pioneered the whole land of song movement and it's it's from that angle that i that i take it then and the rivalry between between their choirs as well
0: and were they involved in stirring up this naughty stuff oh
1: i think one or two of them were worse than the others <laughs> <laughs> i think that um <laughs> if you go drive through aberdeen you see the lovely statue there of of Caradog, the the conductor Griffith Rees-Jones, well, he was very much a pioneer in the in the creation of the whole land of song phenomenon, really, this universal image that people began to get of Wales, and you know, you've got to realise, a country as small as we are, with a population as limited as we've got, we fought well above our weight when it comes to producing so many talented people in so many different spheres of life, and music and singing in particular, and um, he really embraced this whole love of working class music making. And what he did was take a a choir of just 400 voices to a music competition in Crystal Palace in London, which they won on two consecutive years. But before we had a Welsh Rugby Union or a Football Association of Wales, his choir was the first team then of Welsh people that competed on behalf of the nation in a foreign land. So it was quite a big moment. He, He kind of helped to nurture the land of song environment. And within his choir were two men one called Tom Stevens, the other called William Thomas. They both came from the Aberdeen area. They both settled in the Rhondda, and they both had male voice choirs in the Rhondda at the same time, but they were bitter rivals. William Thomas would create a male voice choir in Triorchy that would become known as the Royal Welsh Choir, and he was a teetotal chorus master of the local chapel, and also hated by every child because he was the school attendance officer at the time. <laughs> and then Tom Stevens also had a male voice choir in, in Tom Pentrow, which It's only a few miles away. And a different than William Thomas, he was no teetotal, He was a pub landlord in Treherbert. So a lot of rivalry between them, and it's about those two choirs. And they really did battle it out for winning prizes for overseas tours, and ultimately for the opportunity to sing for Queen Victoria.
0: Wow. There was obviously the money incentive, but then also Queen Victoria wanted to to hear the winners.
1: Well, I guess so. You know, it, what's amazing about them is you know, you know, I was able I had thirty incredibly happy years as a chorister with a male voice choir, then Trioke and we were able to go on tours of America, to Canada, you know, New Zealand, Australia, and they were like almost like a jet set chorister really in the in the twenty first century. But these people were doing it over a hundred years before us. Mm. And they were going on these incredible tours. They would last two years, maybe. Wow. You know, and they would be singing at the White House for, to, for Teddy Roosevelt. They'd be, they'd be going across Australia and New Zealand, you know, and incredible trips, on, on by, obviously by ship and by train. And the stories that come out about it are hilarious. There's one in particular where one choir sings in a Native American uh, reserva- reservation in, in Midwest America. And one of the choristers falls in love with the daughter of the chief, of the tribe and, and tells his fellow choristers he's not continuing on tour with them. He's going to stay behind and live on the reservation with her, and they leave him there, much to the surprise of the choristers, but even more to the surprise of his wife and five children back home in True. Oh my goodness! You know, so all those kind of things happens at a time when people would really have left the ronda, let alone you know travelled across America and Canada, and then you get this. Um, this moment where the choirs themselves are are forever competing against each other until one gets the first invitation of of any welsh choir to go to windsor and sing for queen victoria and it's a huge moment and it causes ructions with the other (laughs) the opposing choir who demand that the postmaster is sacked because he must have given the telegram to the wrong choir you know and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's a great bitter rivalry that it, goes on. I for, mean,
0: it's Valley's for, life, really, isn't it? Oh,
1: very much so. It's, yeah, it's a lovely kind of. <laughs> it's, a, it's a. It's a lovely sort of look into, into what life and, and the, the the pride and the passion in which people felt about this kind of uh, music making, which was must have been extraordinary to have lived in a period where that was so central to people's lives, and uh, and it really does hit the headlines, you know. So I look at those two male voice choirs in particular and the way they they battled out for a good uh, 30 years against each other, and one eventually does disband while the other continues to sing right up until the 1990s, believe it or not, and uh, even so much as singing on, on overseas tours right the way through their history, even singing, singing on the Ed Sullivan show in the, in the US in the 1960s, which was the biggest TV show in the world. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, singing with Jimmy Durante on the programme and things like that. It's a great story, and uh, it's how they survived, and unfortunately, they they almost kind of died of old age really you know and it was the end of of that choir as well none of these choirs are there now but I was very lucky in that I got to know the grandchildren of both Tom Stevens and William Thomas oh. and I, I got to know them over a kind of a 30-year period really Wow. Uh, when I started doing the research back in the uh, early 90s and then like everything else life took over I didn't fulfill my ambition of writing a book on them but I had so much material off these families and and now the great-grandchildren have kept in touch, and I, I still I meet with some of them, and they share stories and a memorabilia. And I thought I'm using lockdown to do something constructive. So I finally got to put everything together and, and publish the book.
0: Fabulous. Well, you are the teller of stories. <laughs> uh, I mean, you really are.
1: Well, thank you for allowing uh, me the chance of the voice, uh, no. the voice piece to do it, Terry. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: no problem at all. I'm sure we'll, we can probably chat about, you know, you giving a talk on the radio about all this at some point. Oh, that'd be great. But, but right to. now, how do people get hold of this uh, excellent publication of yours?
1: So, a Royal Choir for Wales at the moment uh, is, can be sold by contacting me, really. Uh, my <laughs> email address is dean. D-E-A-N, uh, dean at uh, If you do a search on uh, Google search uh, for the Royal Choir for Wales, then I'm sure it'll come up there. But, um, yeah, it'll be great. I would love to hear from people. And, uh, of course, the copy's on sale at twelve ninety
0: nine. Dean, it's been a joy, as always. Pleasure, and Terry.
1: <laughs> and thanks for all the great work and, and keeping on air through what has been a difficult year, I'm sure. But people are always grateful of, uh, of the information they get from you. So, well done to all the team.
0: Thank you. I'll pass that on. Team, Congratulations on your book and I hope it does really well. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks. Take care now. Bye. Bye-bye.